Welcome to The Modern Lawyer, a podcast about the changes and growth in the modern legal industry. I'm your host, Anand Upadhyay. On today's episode of The Modern Lawyer, I had the chance to sit down with Evan Schenkman in his office at Ogletree Deacons in Midtown Manhattan. We discussed his perspective on the rapid growth he's seeing in legal technology. Evan has an interesting and impressive story. He started out as a litigator at Ogletree Deacons, and then he was promoted to partner at the firm. For a number of reasons that we'll get into, he then made a move to the knowledge management department at the firm. He was recently promoted to director of knowledge management. In that capacity, he evaluates innovative companies that solve real problems, as well as companies that just have the next shiny thing. Evan is one of the industry's leading authorities on the best way to evaluate solutions and drive adoption, in large part because he's seen and tested so much of it himself. Let's get right to it. Enjoy the podcast. Evan, thank you for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's a real uh, honor to to be in your offices here at Ogletree Deacons in New York and uh, talk to you about the future of the legal industry. I want to kind of start out with what your practice was when you were a large firm, uh, I should say, Ogletree Deacons litigator. Sure. Um, Well, I, I started practicing law. I graduated law school in 2001. And for the next um, about 10 years, I was a practicing labor and employment attorney. So that's both a mix of counseling and litigation, um, trial court experience, and so on. And um, while I really loved the practice of law and I loved a lot of aspects of the practice of law, um, thinking like a lawyer, um, strategizing, um, I tended to find myself in the role of the person that people would walk down the hall and pop into my office and ask, hey, what's the answer to this? Do you know who could find this? How would you go about this? And that's, to me, that's what I really enjoyed probably more than anything else. I was, I was sort of that go-to guy. And um, while I think it was certainly helpful for my career trajectory, so um, I became a shareholder in 2010. And around that time period, um, while I was sort of um, excited about the fact that my prospects were looking good, I became a shareholder uh, at a relatively young age at the firm. There were certain things about the practice of law that that weren't really clicking with with me and where I wanted to be um, from a practicing attorney mindset, from a, a person mindset. Um, and I was looking at the things that um, that made me successful at the firm. And a lot of it was that everyone knew me as the person to go to for answers. Um, I was orderly. I had all of my great documents set aside that would be helpful for certain kinds of projects. Um, I knew who to go to to find certain things. Now, in 2010, did you even think that you'd be doing anything other than continuing to practice law in 10 years? Were you doubting that you would continue in the practice of law in 2010 or 11? At that point, yes. Um, I was, I would say as a sixth or seventh year associate, um, I was caught up in the fact that I was good at it, um, evaluation wise and bringing in some business and doing well on my cases. But I knew that, um, that there were certain aspects of the practice of law that weren't optimal for me long-term uh, in terms of, um, Lots of time wasted on minutia, um, which gets draining on an associate. Certainly back um, seven, eight, nine years ago, things weren't nearly as efficient as they are now. And that's one of the reasons why I think I'm happy in KM. But there were a lot of things I would have changed 
Uh, there are a lot of aspects of the gamesmanship that took place between plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel that grew old after some time. And I was at the point in my career that I was saying, I, I think I want, want to think about something else I can do that, that I would enjoy more. Uh, I loved a lot of what, uh, what being a lawyer is, is all about. I loved the people I worked with. I loved um, the subject matter that I was involved in, labor and employment law. Uh, I loved thinking like a lawyer. I loved the strategy. I loved dealing with my clients. I had a great relationship with clients and I wanted to, to keep that going. But I just didn't like um, waking up every morning knowing that you'd have three briefs filed against you on, on crazy issues that were filed in large part uh, to try to annoy you over the weekend. And um, things like that gets old. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of litigators across firms, you know, small, medium and large can agree with. Right? Right. I mean, that is one of the things I could personally speak to that when I was a litigator, that was one of the, um, the, the worst parts of it. Right. A lot of the work you're doing just doesn't feel productive. You're in this cycle of gamesmanship. Without a doubt. And, and a lot of the a lot of the groups that I'm a part of now in KM and practice support lawyer groups and groups with organizations like ILTA. Um, all of the former practicing attorneys, when we get together in the room, uh, we all go right back to that, right. that, um, that we're so much happier where we are now. Um, we're actually spending all of our time now making, uh, making attorneys lives easier, letting them get, get home to see their kids a little more, letting them find higher quality work product more efficiently, more easily. Um, we're basically doing the things that we would have loved to have people do for us when we were practicing. But now all we do is spend our time uh, making the practice of law better, both for, uh, for the attorneys at our firm and also for our clients, uh, cause they're happy to. What were some of those things that you were doing from, uh, you know, the early two thousands to about 2010, 11 that were actually cam like in function, but you were just doing them without knowing that you were taking on a quote knowledge management role. Right. Um, very old school precedent collection, um, and research collections. I had um, binders and binders and binders in my office. I still have them there um, with all the research memos that I put together on these random nuanced labor and employment topics, things that might only pop up once every six or seven years. Sure. But when they pop up, um, it's really tough to, to locate someone who's done research on those issues. So I had those there and people would come to me and say, hey, Evan, have you looked at this issue before? And I'll say, yeah, I looked at it four or five years ago. Let me find it. I'd walk to my credenza, I'd, I'd pull out the folder, I'd hand them the research and they were odd because, wow, you not only did you do it, but you right. could find it and you had it available. Right. And, and at that point, you probably also saw the power of that, right? That, that this associate or this, this partner could have spent maybe five, 10, whatever, 15 hours trying to find that same material. But boom, you saved the client and the firm all of that, all of that time and work. Without a doubt. And, and I also found that I really enjoyed those moments where people could come to me and I could give them an answer very quickly uh, to a problem that was pressing to them. Um, they didn't come to me when it was an easy one that they knew the answer to already. They came when there was a time crunch. They had a deadline. They had a client who was on the phone at the moment. And they could come and I could help them. And that's, uh, that's where we are. You know, a lot of folks that I talk to who are kind of outside of the legal industry, but they know generally the limitations and parameters of it. They view large law firms as these billing engines. When I describe to them the work that we're doing at Case Tax, they say, well, why do big firms want to be efficient? Don't they just want to bill, bill, bill? Was there any part of you who was kind of saying, well, you know, I, I saved so-and-so 
attorney 10 hours, but they also could have billed that time. I think that that's a, uh, an unfortunate thought that a lot of people have about law firms that do things efficiently. Um, I can only say that in, in my practice and at my firm, I know that's not the case because we've just drilled it into our attorneys um, for years and years now that the more efficient we are, the higher quality work product that we could provide to our clients, the better we are at giving them what they want more quickly, more expertly, more accurately without charging them a lot for it is going to keep that business and it's going to bring in more business. We have uh, clients coming to us because they hear about our reputation of doing really good work really efficiently. And if we were, uh, if we lost that reputation by trying to, to overpad files or bill for things that, um, that we should be able to provide to our clients um, cheaply because we've already done it before, um, we're going to be losing business. We're going to lose our market share. And that's not where we want to be. Really important point. And I think um, any law firm that is looking to the future knows that nickeling and diming or padding files is, uh, you know, maybe great for this quarter, but uh, a recipe for disaster. Uh, start, uh, take me back to 2011 when, um, you know, a couple things came together. You realized that your brain worked a certain way you were already diligently kind of creating a library of precedent, probably a library of briefs, and you were becoming the go-to person at, um, I take it, the New Jersey and the New York office as the, the person who had a lot of the answers to questions that, you know, where a lot of attorneys at the firm were wondering whether the firm had done that work before. At what point did you, you know, put two and two together and say, there's an opportunity here there is um, a need at the firm to kind of professionalize the role that you'd already been playing as the guy down the hall, you know, the partner down the hall who people could knock on your door and, and, and get a lot of answers to them. I think, I think two things happened in tandem. I think I was having uh, these sort of thoughts on my own, to my, keeping it to myself, especially because I was uh, at that point just, just made shareholder and um, you don't often say when you're trying to become shareholder that you're thinking that there might be something after a shareholder. Um, so th those thoughts were in my head. And unbeknownst to me, my firm was also at the time looking to formalize our knowledge management department. There were a lot of people like me throughout the firm that had some KM instincts. And there were certainly um, a lot of things that now fall under KM that were going on at the firm. But they were looking for starting a group. And somehow just by good fortune to me, and, and hopefully the firm would say the same thing as well, that I made it known to some of my, some of my friends um, on the board at the firm and said, I'm looking to do something else with my career. Prize to them because you know they typically don't make people shareholder first time around and things like that. I said, I'm, I'm looking to do something else with my career. And here are the reasons why. And I, I went through those reasons and I said, what I would love to do instead of going in-house or doing something else outside of the firm, I'd love to use all of the goodwill that I've built up here at the firm, all of the great experience and knowledge that I have about how things at the firm work, what people at the firm should be doing to be more efficient, to provide better service. I know how our firm likes to treat our clients, um, you know, great client relations skills, because at that point, I also started growing a pretty good book of business. Um, so I had some instincts there as well. And all of these things, you know, and I also knew who at the firm uh, was a subject matter expert on what, just because that was one of the things I always tried to find out because I wanted to know who the best people were at the firm for the best sort of topics. And all of those things on the table, I said, uh, might there be something at the firm that I could do that will benefit, allow the firm to benefit from what's in my head? And they said, well, it's great that you asked because we're looking to start a knowledge management department here at the firm. 
And you would be a great person to, to help start that department uh, because you have not only knowledge and, and information and experience of being a, a high-performing attorney at the firm, but also you have some credibility at the firm. So if people say, hey, this knowledge management thing, what is it? They'll say, oh, that's the group that Evan's in. And people at the firm knew me, which, you know, because I'd been practicing for years at the firm. Right now at Ogletree Deacons across the firm, how many people, so attorneys and operations and, you know, staff are in the knowledge management team? Our current team, uh, we have a CKO, uh, Patrick DiDomenico, and we have, I'm a director in the group. We have, um, we have some senior managers. Um, we have our, our KM analysts and assistants and our legal researchers who used to be part of what's called the library at the firm, but they're now under KM as well. Uh, and we have um, three KM counsel. We have a legal project management counsel. Um, when all is said and done, we're, uh, we're above 20 in our group. And so you went from in 2010, 2011, one or two, right? I take it, Patrick, you, and maybe one or two other people to 20 in about six or seven years? Uh, it wouldn't be that big of a jump because some of the people that are in our group um, were already at the firm, uh, mm-hmm. but they weren't under the CAM umbrella. So all of our legal researchers, for instance, and our CAM analysts and assistants were called library tech services and librarians. So that group was already here. Our gentleman who heads up our um, client-facing um, knowledge management services, he was here as well, um, helping build at that point rudimentary and now very fancy and high tech extranets was already at the firm, but under a different department. We brought all of these various disciplines together under KM because there's a lot more synergy there. There's a lot of room for collaboration with research and KM counsel. We have some professionals who are providing external um, legal research assistance and then some folks who are providing internal KM research assistance, you know, what documents, what information, what people, subject matter experts and so on. Um, so all of that really falls under KM as we've grown the group. Do you think Ogletree Deacons could have achieved all that it's achieved in the knowledge management world without creating a knowledge management department uh, just by by maybe appointing a project manager or something and having the project manager uh, interface with IT and the library and all of these different groups? I think it's helpful for, um, for buy-in, first of all. I think that in order to have a successful KM department at a firm, you not only need to have good people um, in the KM department, that's critical. Um, and those good people are people who are, you know, some people who are visionaries, some people who are hard workers, some people who are well-rounded, some people who are tech savvy. Um, all of those various um, characteristics are necessary, but you really need to have a firm that, that buys into the value of KM. A firm that really will put their money where their mouth is, that will sponsor projects, that will see the value of evangelizing KM throughout the firm. It's not just our group saying things that we do are great and helpful and will help our attorneys bring in business and be more efficient, but they help sell it as well because they really believe it. And I think having a standalone KM department helps secure that that firm buy-in, that credibility throughout the firm. If they're just random isolated projects that don't have any any real tie to a well-formed and well-regarded group, then no one will really feel like the KM experience at the firm is something that's legitimate. Were there KM skeptics early on at Ogletree Deacons? I mean, it seems like now it'd be hard to be skeptical. I mean, the the team has achieved a lot, and I don't think that's unique to Ogletree Deacons, right? I think KM teams across firms have achieved a lot and actually now have a lot to show for themselves. But when it was just getting off the ground, uh, were there 
well-intentioned partners and well-intentioned senior administrators at the firm who uh, looked at this proposal of KM and said, seems you know newfangled and uh, unnecessary and buzzy without any actual substance. I think whenever whenever something is new, um, there will be some skepticism. I think I think our approach uh, when we started our KM team um, or our KM department, one of the things that we wanted to do was to tackle that problem of skepticism as to what is this group. Um, so one of the things that we did right off the bat was find what would be a really high value project that we could kick off as our first big project to let people know that KM is here, KM is there to help um, and make their, their lives easier in the process. So um, one of the first projects that we tackled was enterprise search. And I know now enterprise search is commonplace in, in most firms, but or seven years ago, it wasn't. And when we rolled out enterprise search, that was um, really a revolutionary moment for attorneys at the firm where they could go now and instead of just going down the hall and asking me if I've ever put together a research memo on something or using um, the off-the-shelf document management system search um, features, which aren't as aren't where they um, where they are with enterprise search, and certainly weren't as good um, six, seven, eight years ago. It was revolutionary, and within a few months of starting our department, when we had that rolled out, we had hundreds of emails from people saying, "This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened. This is completely um, revolutionary," and and that really gave our department some some pretty immediate buy-in. And once you get a big wind under your belt like that, um, people realize that, wow, this group is really good. Let me listen to them. And it's also what clients are paying for, right? I mean, when, when clients want to work with a firm like Ogletree Deacons, they are buying into a national presence with dozens and dozens of offices and all of the shared knowledge across all those offices, right? That's one big reason why a client would choose to go with mm-hmm. Ogletree Deacons versus you know, a small firm with one location. It's these pooled knowledge type of uh, tools, right? Right. And if we have uh, offices all over the country, which we do, and we're handling a case uh, for a big client in, let's say, our Kansas City office, and we're handling another case for that same client in our Marstown, New Jersey office, if we've already asked um, the client in our Marstown office for a copy of the company handbook um, and they send it to us, they look for it, they PDF it over to us, they send it over... And then a few days later, we're handling case in the Kansas City office, and they ask the client for the same document. That shows the client that we're not all on the same page. We're not in sync. Same thing goes with for research, for legal research that's provided for that client. If we're researching the same issue for the same client uh, based on uh, out of two different offices, they realize we don't ever act together. If we need to, to provide really any assistance to a client, they expect a high level of quality and consistency no matter what office we're at. And we don't have the benefit uh, without our KM tools and, and solutions in place, we don't have the benefit of getting all of the knowledge from our various offices um, shared across all those offices. So uh, one last question that I want to kind of change gears to another topic. So frequently people come to me and ask me, I'm a litigator at a firm, I'm, I'm a corporate attorney at a firm, and I want to make a shift to uh, the next um, the next big thing in the law, what's on the cutting edge of law. And very frequently, that is something that is knowledge management or CAM adjacent. If you had to give yourself from, let's say, the mid-2000, you know, 2003 or four or five, some advice, knowing what you know now, knowing that you were inclined to go towards CAM, but you didn't have all the information and all the knowledge and experience you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would have followed a similar path as I did follow. Um, 
it's funny, you would think that you would change a lot of things going forward, but I think in order to be a successful KM professional, you really need to have a good base um, as a labor and employment, or as a labor employment, if that's your area that you want to stay in, but as a litigator and counselor. Because unless you really know, and I, and I mean really intimately know what the practice of law is all about, um, stages of litigation, counseling, trials, um, dealing with clients, knowing, uh, dealing with, with clients when things go well, dealing with clients when things don't go well, um, knowing the best way to navigate all of these various issues um, from a business standpoint and a legal standpoint, unless you really have a great base um, in all of those areas of just generally speaking, being a good lawyer, you won't be a great KM professional because you really need to develop tools, services, um, and systems and put them in place that will help attorneys at your firm be great labor and employment lawyers at our firm or, or lawyers at their firm. Um, and you need to put systems in place to make clients say, wow, that firm is fantastic. They put together a dashboard that has all the information that I've ever asked for um, and anything I could think of, they already have it there without me even needing to ask for it. And in order to develop things like that, you need to know um, what the what your attorneys need and want, um, what their workflows are like on a day to day basis and what your clients need and want uh, and what their workflows are like on a day to day basis. So I think um, I think at least if you're somebody who's going to be starting a KM group or on the ground floor of a KM group, you really need to have um, a strong base as to what it takes to be a good attorney. Um, from a technical standpoint and what it takes to be a good attorney from a, a client relations standpoint. So for me in my, my space where I helped to start a CAM group at the firm, um, I think I stay, I stuck around as a lawyer for, for right about the right amount of time. If I were someone who was interested in joining a firm, um, for an established KM department, um, you don't need as much time. I think that there are roles for people on KM teams that don't need to be shareholders at, at. Uh, medium to large size firms, but I think they should start at an earlier, uh, at an earlier age than, than maybe I did or maybe some others did in keeping their ear, um, their ear in the various journals and publications and, and, uh, attending webinars about all the latest, uh, developments. And I think that they should go out of their way to be the first person to raise their hand to say, Hey, law firm, I'd love to be on any pilots that you might have of, new research software, new artificial intelligence platforms. Uh, I know there are a lot of exciting things out there. Would you mind getting me um, an opportunity to test them out? Can I be a, a person who can kick the tires on whatever new things happen? You want to get to be in a point, I think, um, of being the go-to person at your firm um, who people reach out to to say, hey, what do you think about that newfangled thing I heard about? And if you could be that person, um, there's a good future for you in KM. You know, one of the most fascinating things to me about your role, Evan, is that you get to play with a lot of the shiniest toys out there in, in legal tech land. And um, you know, while th there's, I think, some diamonds in the rough, I think there's a lot of rough out there. Would you agree as far as legal tech tools? Yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case. Um, there are a lot more out there now than there were before, but they're at various um, levels of, of baked. I talk to a lot of um, CAM professionals, and one of the biggest pain points that they convey to me as a, an outside legal technology provider is we're in an era of technology overwhelm, that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies that want to pitch me, and I don't know what's good um, 
and I don't oftentimes have the time to figure out what's good. What, uh, and this is, this is a very broad question as well, but in, um, in, in initial outreach, how do you decide what pitches get to, um, you know, borrow 30 minutes of your time and what, uh, emails or cold calls you simply, um, don't follow up on? I, I, I say this with some reluctance because it may explode my inbox. Um, but I, t- but I tend to be someone who will, uh, listen more than some others might just because I, by my nature, I think I'm interested in what other tools and services are out there that I might not know about or might not, uh, have investigated already, um, in terms of, you know, in the legal space, obviously, um, I tend to take more of these calls and, and because I have just sort of that curiosity about, Hey, that's interesting. I just heard that someone's using Watson in a new way. Let me see what that's all about. And I'll, uh, I'll make a call or someone on my team will make a call. We'll set up a demo um, or an overview um, and then we'll decide whether or not it makes sense to proceed further in, in some formal capacity with a pilot or something along those lines. I suppose when you're seeing the pitch and a lot of pitches out there are good and slick, some of them aren't, right? Some of them are clunky and don't make a lot of sense. But of the ones that are slick and good, uh, how do you decide which ones advance to a pilot? Because I know that pilots are time-consuming, they're expensive for, for firms to, to run, which ones get greenlit and which ones kind of stay in the, the, on the waiting list? Yeah, I, I think the ones that get greenlit are the ones that, um, that do something um, in, a, in a way that we haven't done it yet that lets us provide services to our clients in a, a faster, better, uh, more efficient way. And if we can find uh, tools out there that do that, then they're, they tend to be always worth worth our look. In addition to doing things that we already do in a better, faster, more efficient way, there are a lot of tools out there and we're always interested in seeing tools out there that do things that we can't do yet. Um, and they do them in a, in a fast, efficient uh, way. You know, for instance, we're not in the, uh, we're not in the business of being able to, to read every single case out there uh, on every topic because that would be hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, so you need to make a judgment call as an attorney as to how long you will research a particular problem, uh, project. Uh, and it's based upon how much, um, you know, what your estimate might be and, and deciding whether I'm stopping at the right point in my research. Um, certain client questions may call for an hour or two of research, but not 200 hours of research. There are now vendors out there that are able to provide you with something more along the lines of 50 hours of research. And that's in a way that we were not able to do it previously. To go back to your question, in addition to the vendors that do things that we already do better, faster, uh, more efficient, we also are interested in vendors that say, hey, you've never been able to before now look at every single case and do this sort of tweaking with them and see these sort of um, analytics about them. But now it's possible and we're, we're always interested in seeing how that works and, and whether it could help us and our clients. I want to get to a kind of a nuts and bolts CAM question to our kind of diehard CAM listeners. When you've decided that you want to evaluate a product, Mm -hmm. what are your next steps? And of course, I'm I'm referring to a internal product trial here. How do you set it up? Uh, Who do you choose to be on the product trial? And ultimately, how do you as the buyer uh, decide whether this is a go or a no go? Sure. So the first step we usually do would be a demo that I would uh, I would attend or someone on my team would attend. Uh, we then, if we decide this looks good, we want to look further. Uh, we would then set up a small uh, trial run. We'd get um, you know trial credentials, 
um, for typically first for members of my team. Um, we have a number of CAM counsel who were the former practicing attorneys, um, and they're the perfect people for running these initial trials to see how it works, whether it works well, whether we think it would be uh, something that our attorneys would find useful. Or why, why are they the, the ideal set? Because they were former practicing attorneys themselves and they don't have to bill their time. So um, we're not pulling someone away from uh, arguing at trial or handling a deposition or doing discovery, whatever the case may be, for, um, for an initial review of product. A lot of times we'll, we'll do the initial trial and even though the, the demo that we saw uh, that was a PowerPoint looked flashy and slick and we thought it sounded great, once we actually go in and actually are in this tool ourselves, we realize it's, it's not ready for prime time. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's two, three, four years away, but it's not ready now. And we don't want to put our attorneys through that exercise of, of realizing that we want to find that out uh, and not and, bother them. And do you have um, a system of surveys that you send out? Let's say there's 10 attorneys evaluating the tool. Do you send out surveys to them and uh, get feedback in a structured way? We do. Um, so we do that first for our KM attorneys who review it. And then if we want to go further, if we realize that it got a thumbs up from our KM attorneys, uh, we'll then open up the pilot to um, a group of attorneys at our firm that have volunteered to test out things like this. We have a, a large group of um, dozens and dozens of attorneys who have said, hey, I want to be in on the ground floor on evaluating these sort of tools. We have something called a KM network of people in all the offices who um, have those sort of KM instincts and, and care about advancing um, advancing the law and trying out some of these new innovative tools. Right. Also just keeping up with all the things they read about in the news. Right? Correct. Um, so once we roll out the pilot uh, for them or, or once we open up the pilot, they test it out for a period of time. We try to get as long as possible because it's it's hard for practicing attorneys to dedicate an hour or two to test something out um, in a short amount of time because of their workload. So we ask for a longer period of time, whether it's um, three weeks, a month, a month and a half, whatever the case may be. And then after that, um, we'll have a formal evaluation that we'll send out to them uh, via a survey tool that we have at the firm. But during the process, we'll also be reaching out to them, asking them how they're finding it. Um, we'll see if they've actually accessed it, accessed it or not. Um, we'll send out emails to, to see how things are going. So we're getting feedback throughout the pilot, but then we do have a formal feedback process at the end. What are your expectations of the legal technology providers throughout this process and assuming you purchase the product through the rollout? Mm -hmm. um, what do you want to see from them? Well, they tend to be great during pilots. They're always uh, very responsive answering the questions. And the ones that, that don't, then we really have some concerns about. Um, but we lean on them for, um, for assistance with initial training um, quite often. If it's a pilot um, for a product that's new to us, and typically these all are, um, we're not the experts on using it. Um, so we'll have the vendors uh, will often help us put together some training videos. They might lead a training session via um, WebEx or or something along those lines for the people in the pilot. We'll record it. We'll then provide it to anybody who, uh, who is on that pilot. And then once we're, if we, if we make a decision to proceed, um, then we would have that same vendor help us with the, the rollout and so on. But there certainly are a lot of steps before we make that decision to proceed. I'm hearing a lot about uh, a lot of cross pressures that firms like Ogletree Deacons and certainly hundreds of other firms out there are facing. One is uh, the rise of in-house counsel taking more work uh, in-house and uh, farming less work out. I'm hearing about the rise of big four accounting firms. Um, you know, I'm hearing about the rise of more small and medium-sized niche firms as opposed to the 
large, large, uh, you know, coast to coast kind of firms. What is your sense of that? And to what extent do you think KM plays into keeping firms like Ogletree Deacons um, at the top of their game, relevant and, uh, you know, handling a lot of the premier L&E cases, labor and employment cases out there in the country? I think KM is certainly critical uh, when you're talking about the pressures that that you're referring to. Um, law firms are being um, are being more critical in terms of how much they'll spend for certain um, sort of assignments. A lot of things are moving to alternative fee arrangement basis. Um, we have other new competitors in the legal space that are also trying to get some market share from labor and employment advice. And all of these things just scream the need for having uh, a strong, robust KM group at a firm that's that will help a firm do things more efficiently, do things, um, provide more value added and so on. And I, in part of, uh, part of my role, um, I get a lot of RFPs to look at and, um, the RFPs that come to me, uh, which is a, an increasing share of them now are ones that are asking for KM related questions, right? They're RFPs where the clients are directly saying, please tell us how your attorneys are more efficient. Please give us information about um, how your attorneys will share information across various uh, offices. Please tell us um, how you will make sure that the quality of the work is high, uh, notwithstanding the um, the pricing that we've asked for. Uh, those are the sort of things where um, where clients get it. They realize now, and when we're also asking how do you use analytics and things like that that we've never saw in RFPs before, and now we're starting to see them in RFPs. And uh, law firms that don't have good answers to those questions. Um, are really going to be at a loss. And law firms that have answers to those questions that are just answers with no substance behind them are also going to lose out because the clients will quickly realize that they just gave answers to try to win that business, but they didn't really have, uh, they didn't really have it behind the scenes. And do, do you think that's a, a, a new, based on your observations, is that a new trend over the last couple of years? Uh, all of these questions about the actual operations and knowledge management of a firm, and in fact, um, the invitation for a knowledge management person at the firm to join an RFP meeting. I think it's I think it's something that we didn't see four or five years ago. It started probably in the past three or four, uh, probably two to three years, and. Um, and it's, for me, it's exciting. Um, it's, it shows the, um, the fact that not only do our clients, um, see the value in KM and see the value that it brings, but it's, um, it shows that our firm is certainly, um, invested in KM and not just, uh, rolling out a KM group and then letting it sit put, but making sure that it's, that we're always innovating. We're always advancing. Um, it, uh, the fact that I'm asked to appear at pitches uh, quite often shows that not only do the clients care about what I have to say, but the shareholders at the firm realize that we bring a lot of value. These are things that it was very rare five, six years ago, and now it happens all the time. Evan, so we've talked a lot about um, legal technology as it stands now, how you evaluate new legal technology. Where would you like to see legal technology go from your standpoint as a buyer? So one of the things that I, I think um, is very exciting about where legal tech is now, but also provides some area to, to get even better, is that right now we have a lot of great legal tech that they all handle a lot of really interesting discrete uh, functions, right? We have legal tech that can help prepare um, an answer to a complaint. We have legal tech that could help find cases that you might need to use. 
We have legal tech that could help um, alert you when cases are filed against your clients or your prospects or when news happens with your clients and your prospects. Uh, we have legal tech that could help draft certain documents. Um, the problem for me is trying to teach our attorneys at the firm how to use these 12, 13, 14 different um, sources that we have, right? We also have legal tech that helps find, helps attorneys find who the right person might be to handle a case or that might find a document that we've drafted internally that might be perfect for this certain scenario. And while, while we could have an attorney um, or some professionals at the firm handle all of these 10, 11, 12 discrete steps, wouldn't it be great if we had something that brought all that together, right? If we're sitting at our desk as an attorney and a case was filed against a prospect or a client and the attorney would get some sort of a message saying a case was filed against your prospect here are the allegations in the complaint here's what a draft answer would look like here is what judges in this jurisdiction tend to rule on complaints like that here is what opposing counsel's experience is here's who usually ha uh, handles cases for this client here are the people in your firm that you should reach out to and here are documents that your firm's already prepared on this topic, you know, that sort of thing. Here's how long you can expect this case to last. There already are tools out there, and we're subscribers to a lot of them that do a lot of these things, the notification, the drafting, the suggestions as to internal documents and experts and so on. There are a lot of tools that already do this, but there's no way to really, yet that we found, bring it all together into some seamless workflow that kicks off without even needing to ask for it, right? The, the beauty is giving information to attorneys that they need, that they don't even uh, necessarily think to ask for, and making it um, an efficient process for them where they don't have to remember, oh yeah, we have a tool that does this. Oh yeah, we have a tool that does that. We have a tool that does this. That to me would be the holy grail that would start to bring all of this stuff together. I was going to say, I was going to describe it exactly in that way, the holy grail of legal technology, right? The kind of end-to-end -end solution. Are you optimistic about an end-to-end -end solution? I mean, it seems like um, a legal technology company that did that would have to really work well with maybe, as you mentioned, 10 or a dozen different other legal tech tools. You know, I, I have to say I'm optimistic because I never would have thought five or six years ago that we would already have tools that are as exciting as ones that we're piloting now and ones that we're rolling out at the firm just from a data analytics standpoint, from an artificial intelligence standpoint, from a machine learning standpoint. And not only do we have these tools that could do these things, but we have attorney buy-in and firm buy-in uh, that this is the right way to go. So putting all those things to, and a firm who's willing to spend money uh, when the price is right, when the product is right, and when it really adds value uh, to our clients, we're willing to, to go in that direction. So putting all of those things together um, with a lot of vendors out there who are hungry, um, you know, like, like you guys at case text where you, you put out a good product, but you're now, um, you revolutionized it. You're doing new things with it. Um, as long as we have all of those, um, those ingredients, I think what we're, what we're going to see, uh, in the next few years is, is going to get a lot closer to what I'm talking about is the Holy grail. And then, then we'll be already thinking about the next Holy grail. Right. I mean, if we could match the growth, um, over the last five years in the next five years, I agree. I mean, there's no reason why a kind of an end to end solution like that, uh, uh, you know, can't exist. Evan, I really appreciate you joining us for this podcast and, and hosting me here in your gorgeous office in, uh, in midtown Manhattan. It's been a real pleasure. And, uh, thanks for being on my pleasure. Great talking with you as always.
And this was going to be the end of the podcast recording. But thanks to Evan's hospitality and our shared interest in this area, I stuck around after we finished recording and we ended up continuing the conversation. About 10 minutes in, I stopped Evan mid-sentence and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to hit record again because it was too good not to. So Evan, I, I stopped recording the podcast and we started having a conversation offline and I wanted to get it recorded back online because I thought it was really good. And it stemmed from one of the things that we talked about in the recording, which is uh, in a holy grail situation, a complaint filed would trigger a chain of events at the firm. And I kind of wanted to have you go through in your mind what that chain of events would be and what technology would be triggered to provide what solution. Sure. And and not, not all of these are technologies that we subscribe to, but they're things that I know currently are out there, right? So uh, if you get something, uh, something on one of your clients that a complaint was filed uh, via maybe courthouse news service or um, docket alarm or something like that, uh, it would kick off a process. So that's step one of the process, right? It would kick off a process then by which it would send uh, an email to the attorneys at your firm who have a relationship with that client or prospect. And in that email, uh, not only like we currently get now, a case has been filed, but it would automatically generate a report that would include things like um, like legalmation. Uh, here is a draft answer and draft discovery for this complaint that was filed. It would get you some content from uh, from Bloomberg Analytics or Lex Machina or some of the other analytics vendors saying, here's what happens when you file that sort of a complaint uh, in this particular court. Here's how long it might take. Here's the experience of the judges. Here's the venue, uh, likelihood of success on the merits. Um, there's uh, uh, information about the opposing counsel. It could run it through um, someone out there like Employment Foresight in Canada that provides you with um, some analytics as to the likelihood of success for a particular kind of case, right? All of these things um, could be done automatically. And those are external vendors. We also could run it through some of our internal systems, uh, like our enterprise search. We could see uh, in that same email that we get once the case is filed, we could say, and by the way, here are the attorneys at your firm that have experience litigating these kinds of cases. Um, here are their success rates. Here are the briefs that they filed in these cases. Um, Think of how much uh, better you would be positioned to bring in that case if you got an email like that and to be successful in that case, to accurately assess that case on your first call with the client or the prospect, um, if you could get all of that information. And think of how much money you're saving the client, right? If you can get all of that really good content where you didn't need to draft the documents, you didn't need to do the research, you didn't need to write the brief, and you got that all essentially in seconds, um, isn't that where we would love to be in a few years? And you're kind of de describing a law firm in the future, right? I mean, this is this is something that seems um, somewhat within within our grasp, right? As as legal technologists right. and at law firms, and the elements are already out there, right? Just Very, not all put together in, in one nice package. Very interesting. Uh, I want to raise the specter of um, the robot lawyer, or uh, the, the robots are taking our jobs, because this is something that I think a lot of our listeners would react to and say, well, if right when the complaint is filed, the answer is written, the legal research is done, uh, the analytics are presented, um, do you really need the attorney workforce that we have now? Is this the rise of the robot lawyer? What are humans to do? <laughs> you look very sad right there. Um, no, I think I think that's always something that um, that people fear when we're talking about um, some elements of AI brought to legal. 
but there really is, at least uh, at least now, and I, I don't think we'll ever get there, um, there really is a large element of discretion um, and judgment. And I think judgment and discretion is always uh, what's most highly valued um, from lawyers. And I think dealing with busy work and minutia and stuff that do, doesn't take an attorney's discretion and judgment are things that can be handled probably at a higher at a higher um, success rate as well than humans. And such, if- such an important point. And that, that is something that I emphasize a lot. This is kind of why I laughed at the idea of the robot lawyer, because, you know, our message at Case Text, and I know a lot of other companies have the same message, is not uh, our technology will, uh, you know, make your uh, make your job go away in 10 years, but our technology will allow you to not do the busy work that you don't like to do, that the firm doesn't value, that the client doesn't value, and focus you on the reason you went to law school, which is to make creative arguments, to analyze cases, to interpret, to be a human being with all of the experience that you have in your head, not to be someone who, in a rote, template-based way, comes up with an answer to a complaint or files something in some folder online. It's that's completely true. And and uh, I don't know any attorneys right now who are um, still upset about the fact that that document review is now done in large part by computers. And they were a couple years ago. They were you know, 10 years ago. They were worried about that. And now we, we still hire those associates. They're still gainfully employed. and They're doing more meaningful work where they get to actually use their brains rather than uh, just sit bleary-eyed in front of a computer screen. Absolutely. And I think this could be a boon in a lot of ways to the legal industry, right? I mean, I think right now um, a lot of young associates are frustrated in their jobs. I hear from a lot of associates all the time who want to leave law practice. And I don't think it's because uh, law practice is not intellectual or that it is not creative, but I think it's because uh, that portion of law practice it has been kind of crowded out by a lot of the rote work that attorneys have to do. What's your take on that? Definitely. I think that uh, that the reason I went to law school and I think the reason most of my colleagues went to law school was because it, it's exciting and it's fun to craft legal arguments, to try to, to look at a fact pattern and, and figure out how, uh, how the law applies to those facts. And um, no, nothing in law school prepared me for what I faced um, when I got out of law school and was put in a room with boxes and boxes of documents to look through. And, um, and that's been now outsourced in large part by computers. But there still is a, a lot of uh, just go, uh, rote going through cases and going through um, using templates. Right? If we already have a template, do we need a human being to go in and update the captions and, and add certain things into the template? Or should we have that human being focused on making um, strategic revisions to that template based upon um, a legal argument, a legal strategy, right? That's where attorneys um, should be, and that's where attorneys want to be, because it's a lot more enjoyable uh, to get to use your attorney brain rather than just um, spend time with what's, what's amounts to essentially busy work. And, and you know, I think it, it is uh, a great alignment that legal technology and the legal industry and attorneys in the legal industry have in that the work that we're trying to automate out is the most boring, least efficient, oftentimes most hated work among associates and partners at the firm. Without a doubt.
Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you. Reach out to me at onan at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.